Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we bring you an all-wrestling duel, as I will be battling with 1992 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, ready to rumble with 1984, say hello to Man Crush. That's right. Man Crush has six-year-old Man Crush from uh, 1984. A lot of memories, so we'll see what, uh, what good memories come out of this. Some bad. Also joining the panel this week with the best slobber knockers of 1999, it's Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger of the Video Rangers podcast, representing 1999 in the world of wrestling. I was 17 years old, and I was nowhere near a turnbuckle. (laughs) And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is a four-time Emmy Award-winning TV host and the best interview in the biz. All rise and welcome Judge Chris Van Vliet. Guys, thank you so much for having me on. All rise. I like this. I need need like a handsome bailiff to my right to be saying these things too. (laughs) I'm happy to say that I was alive for every single one of these years that we're going to be talking about. I was young during some of them, but uh, man, I can't wait. And thank you for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, review the show, listen, subscribe, and play along at home as we commence another episode of Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to Chris Van Vliet for the coin toss. I brought an actual coin, but it's not what you think. This is the big gold belt. Oh. <laughs> on one side and on the other side. Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess we call the side with an actual head on it. We'll call the Ric Flair side here heads and we'll call the big gold belt here tails. That thing is awesome. Mike, you can call it. Um, I'm going to go with uh, tails. Okay, here we go. I hope I don't drop this thing because it's very heavy and feels expensive. <laughs> Okay, it is Tails! Woo! Oh, well, this is excellent. Uh, w- would anybody mind if I defer my pick? Because <laughs> I- I'm simply a fill-in here, and I don't know what the fuck is good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
right, Mike Ranger, you won the coin toss. You get to go first, but you've deferred your first pick. So, Man <laughs> Crush, why don't you start off? All right, let's uh, let's go to TV. I, I mentioned this to you guys before we started. I didn't give you the full details, but let's get into this one. So let's go to November 22nd, 1984. Yeah, with everything good, you got to have some bad. So I only get what's given to me time period-wise, and I can't only cover WWF. This is 1984. So I have to look at what other people are doing at the time. And with that being said, let's take a peek at what old Jim Crockett Productions was up to in 1984. And I'm going to be 100% honest here. This is probably one of the worst pay-per-views I have ever seen in my entire life. Uh, the entire production was botched from the moment they hit the record button. If you're looking at the names on the card, there's some there's big ones. Like we just mentioned, Ric Flair is on this. Dusty Rhodes is on this. Tully Blanchard's on this, Ricky Steamboat, you got the Cool-Offs, Wahoo McDaniel's on this, Superstar Billy Graham, and it's 1984, but let me tell you, there's only one reason to watch this, and that is strictly for the laughs, so let's get into what I quote-unquote is the premier event of the wrestling century, is what they called it here, and it begins with the, uh, it didn't begin with this, but this is the first thing that I remember, is the, uh, the NWA Brass Knuckle Championship was part of this with uh, Manny Fernandez and Black Bart. There were no black or there were no brass knuckles. They just taped their hands up with black tape. And uh, Man Manny Fernandez won via roll up, uh, ending the uh, the Brass Knuckle Championship right there. Great ending. Most devastating move in all of wrestling. Oh, it was, oh, it was amazing. Um but to begin the whole thing off, I think this was the most devastating move in 1984. You had uh, Denny Brown versus Mike Davis in what was the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title match. And apparently they didn't even have a title uh, or even really a champ at this point. Uh, and both guys were baby faces. So it's very weird match. Uh, Mike Davis... He even checked on Denny Brown at one point. He got thrown out of the ring and he went down to see if he was okay. And then he held the ropes open for him for his re-entry. Very bizarre. I mean, this, this is Starcade that I'm talking about, by the way. This is like the biggest event of the year. And this is what they're bringing to the table. Uh, but then uh, David hits the, uh, the bridging German suplex for the pin, but ends up pinning himself in the process. And the, uh, the ring announcer declares Davis the victor which is a complete fuck up. It should have went to Denny Brown. So the whole thing starts off with conspiracy. It's like, what is going on? Then you had, uh, Brian Adidas is a name, like probably a jobber back in the day. They're calling him Brian Adidas through this whole thing. <laughs> uh, then you get dusty backstage. Who's doing an interview with a very young Tony Schiavone, which is fantastic to see. But uh, he's talking about his match with Ric Flair, and he says uh, that Ric Flair is going to be yesterday's newspaper. I think uh, he was going for yesterday's news. <laughs> or it's Dusty Rhodes, so I mean, maybe he went. He meant newspaper. I don't, I'm not sure. They had the uh, the tuxedo street fight uh, between Paul Jones and uh, Jimmy Valiant, where the loser is either stripped naked or pinned. And luckily, uh, yeah, Paul Jones won <laughs> via pinfall. Uh, but there was there's a stipulation in this match that the loser had to quote unquote leave the area, but they never elaborate on what the fuck that actually entails. So you don't know if he, does he have to leave the state, the the territory. Like they don't even tell you. 
It's just the area around the ring. It might be. It could, it could possibly be that. You don't even know. The only great match this whole thing, you got uh, Tully Blanchard against Steamboat. Fantastic match. Tully pulls that one out. Uh, I'm skipping a lot of the matches in this, but there's a superstar, Billy Graham, who is now a karate master in 1984, which I didn't even remember, uh, which is completely hilarious. If you find this match between Wahoo McDaniel and uh, Billy Graham, you don't have to watch the whole match. Just watch Billy Graham's entrance to the ring. It's fantastic. He looks great, but him as a karate master just doesn't fit. And then to uh, the main event, okay? This is the the biggest event of the year, Starcade. It's for a million dollars between Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. And they have uh, Smokin' Joe Frazier, who's the special guest referee, and he calls the match for a cut over Dusty's eye. Like he's... <laughs> refereeing a boxing match it's like the weirdest ending ever like if that happened in like i'm not gonna say 2020 because there's nothing happening in 2020 say if that happened in 2019 there would have been a flat-out riot in whatever arena this thing was at it was the weirdest thing he wins and he basically rick flair just leaves he's like all right peace out and then they show him in the back a little bit later with his check for a million dollars but that's what i got i got for tv i got and it's of course this is, was on closed caption pay-per-view back in 1984 but this is starcade by uh the old jcp wow all right mike ranger are you ready to go with your television selection oh sure why not mark uh well uh created to counter program wcw's thursday night offering thunder WWF SmackDown made its first appearance as a one-off special on April 29th, 1999. Initially, the special utilized the Monday Night Raw set before eventually getting its own unique identity, including a dedicated set, theme music, and more. It made its official episodic debut on August 26, 1999. The show was not live like Raw, but instead like WCW's Thunder recorded on Tuesdays. SmackDown actually proved to be so popular, WCW made a scheduling change, moving Thunder to Wednesdays and as to not directly compete to WWF's new program. The show has long been referred to as the company's secondary or B-show. It's seen its home network and air dates change countless times throughout the course of its 20-year-plus existence. It made the move to cable television in 2019 as part of a massive deal with Fox Network, where it now airs live on Friday nights. The show has certainly earned its place in pop culture, at the very least, uh, the name alone. The show itself derived its name from a popular catchphrase from The Rock. The SmackDown name even extended to a series of several video games throughout the years, and if you're like me, you often use the term as it relates to getting things done around the house. For instance, laying the SmackDown on these gutters. When the time comes to clean them out... <laughs> when the time comes to clean them out in spring <laughs> All right. Oh, I should mention that Bo wrote this. Um, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, you need a preface. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you how many times I, I, I tell the laundry I need to perform a SmackDown on it. Yeah. <laughs> also of note, uh, ECW debuts on TNN on August 27th. Eric Bischoff is fired by WCW on September 10th. And Vince Russo and Ed Furrer become writers of, for WCW on October 3rd. Oof. Yeah. I'm sorry. I tried my best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, so we'll go over to my television selection. Now, what I'd like to have right now is for all of you fat, out-of-shape, dueling decades douchebags to keep it down for just a minute so I can show you all what a real pick looks like. So we're going to go to leap year, 
February 29th, 1992 for WCW Super Brawl 2. Best friends, now bitter rivals, brawl for it all. Absolutely fantastic pay-per-view event. It starts off with Flying Brian defeating Jushin Thunder Lager. One of the best opening matches ever. I think the only one that comes to mind that might be better was Bretton Owen. Um, and then you have Marcus Alexander Bagwell, a.k.a. Buff Bagwell, beating the tailor-made man. Ron Simmons defeats Cactus Jack. And then you got the Z-Man and Van Hammer uh, defeat Richard Morton and Vinny Vegas, a.k.a. Kevin Nash. Then you get two fantastic tag team matches. Barry Windham and Dusty Rhodes take out the dangerous alliance of Larry Zbysko and Steve Austin. And then the tag team title match of the Dangerous Alliance of Arn Anderson and Beautiful Bobby, defeating the Steiner Brothers. Now we go to our main events, and that's Rick Rude defeating Ricky Steamboat in 20 minutes. This match is absolutely fantastic, bell to bell. You can't go wrong anytime Rick Rude is in the ring with Ricky Steamboat. And then our main event, Sting, capturing his second world title. From Lex Luger, who this would actually be his last match in the Federation until 1995. as He would go to uh, do some bodybuilding and then go work for Vince and try to be the new Hulk Hogan. We all know how that worked out. So that's what I got. February 29th, 1992, Super Brawl 2. So that's my selection. Let's throw it down to Chris Van Vliet for the ruling of the television round. Three great choices there. So November 22nd, 1984, April 29th, 1999, February 29th, 1992. And you were listing off all these names there. I'm like, man, what a trip down memory lane, which is what this whole show is about, which I love. I think, though, it's going to be hard to beat 1999 solely because the SmackDown set with the fist is the greatest (laughs) wrestling set of all time. And that actually is the greatest return of 2020. When the SmackDown fist came back during the Firefly Funhouse match, very briefly there with John Cena, I was like, this is it. This is is perfect. So I also think that SmackDown was a big FU to WCW. You know, the Monday Night Wars were, you know, they were hot and heavy. They were happening. And I think that Vince went, hey, you got that Thursday show? Yeah. We'll show you what we can do on a Thursday as well. And uh, the fact that it's now on cable television, the fact that it's now on Fox is uh, pretty incredible. Um, So I'm giving it to 1999 Mike Ranger. Oh, thank you. Mike's like shit. All right. Now I got to pick another fucking topic. All right. Excited for this. I don't know where to go from here. Um, you know, I, th- I think I'm going to go with news because this looks depressing and I might as well get it out of the way. Oh, oh I'm sorry, guys. I know where you're going. Yeah. Should I go there? I don't have, well, a, cho- you have, to. I don't have a choice. <laughs> I don't have anything else. These, these are the notes as they were given to me. <laughs> Held at the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri on May 23rd, 1999, WWF's pay-per-view Over the Edge will forever be overshadowed and marred by the tragedy of the death of Owen Hart. Scheduled to face the Godfather for the Intercontinental Championship, during the event, Hart was to make his entrance as his alter ego, the Blue Blazer, which would involve him being flown into the rafters on a cable and a harness device. During his entrance, the device malfunctioned, leading to Hart being released too early and falling more than 78 feet, landing in the ring and to his death in front of over 16,000 fans in attendance and countless fans watching from home. 
Equally as criticized was Vince McMahon's decision to continue the broadcast despite the tragedy. In court, Hart's wife, Martha, children, and parents sued the WWF, contending that poor planning of the stunt caused Owen's death. WWF settled the case out of court, paying $18 million to the family. Due to the accident and controversy surrounding the event, the over-the-edge name was retired. The show was also not released for home video viewing until the launch of the WWE Network in 2014, where an edited version of the show removing any mention of Hart's death was released. The death of Owen Hart is widely regarded as one of the most tragic events in professional wrestling history and is still discussed today. Most recently, during a season two episode of the popular Vice Network series Dark Side of the Ring, where the tragedy was discussed at greater length. Though his life was cut far too short, his legacy remains as one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Wow. Yeah, that's a tough one right there, man. That'd be perfect if this was a worst of episode. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a best of episode, but yeah, monumental loss for the wrestling world. All right, Man Crush, let's see what you have for the news round. Oh, man, that was a downer. All right, so let's go uh, January 23rd, 1984. You guys will have to follow my lead on this one, right? I'm sure there is an argument to be made that this pick should be under television. However, I've looked long and hard. I cannot find a single TV listing for this match, at least on the night that it took place, which was a Monday night. And the arena where this took place, Madison Square Garden, also has his own channel, which Mike knows as well as I do for a long time. We got MSG channel. However, on the night of January 23rd, according to the Daily News, they were playing boxing from the felt form, which of course is part of MSG, but it's not wrestling. It's boxing. There is, of course, MSG footage of this historic match, but I'm thinking that's probably the closed circuit recording from inside the arena, and they just reused that and resold it, which is normal. Um, but in any event, this was such like a nothing burger at the time that even if this was on television, it wasn't even listed correctly in the TV guide and daily news. It was listed as boxing. So here's the sole article about this entire event. It's not long. I mean, this article, it's not even a, it's one paragraph. It says, uh, iron cheek to face incredible Hulk. This is the article. The Iron Sheik makes his first defense of the World Wrestling Federation heavyweight title in the Garden Monday night against the incredible Hulk Hogan, which is weird. Incredible Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan (laughs) replaces Bob Backlund, who lost the title to the Sheik in December. The first bout will go on at 8 p.m. Backlund hasn't fully recovered from his injured right shoulder. He received in losing the title against the Sheik. In companion features... Who says it like that? In companion features, in companion features, the magnificent Morocco defends his intercontinental crown against Tito Santana and Andre the Giant teams with Mr. Atlas and Rocky Johnson against the three Samoans in a six man team test. I mean, here's a, this is a historic event. Not only is this the beginning of Hulkamania, but this is also this is the explosion of wrestling to the mainstream. And as I mentioned before, the event, it might have been overlooked that, you know, that they did get that TV guide wrong. Well, in January of 1984, I looked this up out of all of the newspapers in the United States, Iron Sheik, the term Iron Sheik was mentioned a whopping 41 times. That's every newspaper in the United States, 41 times. Hulk Hogan was mentioned a mere 21 times. So I skipped ahead to January of 1985. Hulk Hogan was mentioned over a hundred times and not just 
which we see a lot when we do the uh, the research for this stuff. You see a lot of card descriptions, not just card descriptions. He had like full on articles by January of eighty five. Then if you give it two full years after the WrestleMania that took place in eighty five, now you have Hulk Hogan in January of eighty six. He was mentioned seventeen hundred and fifty times in two years, wow. seventeen hundred fifty times. So not only is every kid in the U.S. saying their prayers and eating their vitamins now, but professional wrestling is on the main stage. And all it's all thanks to this five-minute match where Hulk Hogan becomes the first guy ever, allegedly, to uh, to break the camel clutch, hits the leg drop, heard around the world, and we got the champion. I mean, the footage of this event, it's amazing, though. If you watch this, there is footage from MSG Channel. You have... Andre the Giant, Ivan Putzky, after the match, they got Hulk Hogan in the locker room. They're pouring champagne over his head. Me and Gene's interviewing Hogan with his mom and dad in the locker room. <laughs> I mean, this felt like a huge deal That's at the time. Awesome, I mean, man. it's, it's am- like I never saw his parents before. I never saw any wrestler's parents. I didn't know that Hulk Hogan had parents. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and his dad actually kind of looks like him. He had the, the same hair that Hulk had once he got older. But he would keep that belt for a staggering 1,474 days until he lost that thing to Andre the Giant on February 5th, 1988. But, I mean, there's a lot in this story. It's not just him. It's wrestling. It's WWF starting to pick up steam here from this one thing. You know, you went from Bob Backlund being the champion to Iron Sheik to now Hogan. He's carrying the torch for, you know, what is that, like four years, four solid years. Yeah. And... I, you know, I kept looking in the paper trying to see like days afterwards. And the only thing I could find, I swear, it was an article about this big. And it just said uh, Hulk Hogan, who has appeared on several times on pro wrestling cards at the Brown County Veterans Memorial Arena, won the World Wrestling Federation Championship this past Monday when he pinned Iron Sheik before a record crowd of 26,000 fans at Mass Square Garden. I don't know. I mean, it's that's all they said about this whole thing. So you're talking about 1984 where this is wrestling. And then two years later, it's huge. Every kid is all over wrestling. But that that was my story from January 23rd, 1984. All righty. So for my news story, we're going to go over to the Gazette in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, January 20th, 1992. Now, when I think of 1992 and wrestling, one thing comes to mind and one thing only. So I had to find a news article on it. And the headline reads, Flair rumbles to WWF victory. Nature boy Ric Flair comes to Montreal tonight as the World Wrestling Federation's new champion. Flair outlasted 29 other WWF stars at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany yesterday afternoon in the annual Royal Rumble pay-per-view show. Tonight at the Forum, he'll take on four-time WWF champion Hulk Hogan, who was eliminated late yesterday. So I think the headline's buried here. It's the fact that Ric Flair outlasted 29 other people. He enters the Rumble at three. He wins the WWF title. Then the next night, has to fly to Montreal and wrestles Hogan again. So if that doesn't tell the dedication and the true road warrior-ness, I guess if that's a word, of, uh, of some of these professional wrestlers, it's just absolutely fantastic. Another article I found about this was actually in the Miami Herald, January 20th, 1992. Now, of course, the Royal Rumble was on January 19th. Now, this article was supposed to be published on the 19th. For some odd reason, they held it over to the 20th. And it says, uh, Rumble should be really rowdy. 
The best word to describe what today's pay-per-view will be about is Rowdy, as in Rowdy Roddy Piper, who will be the focal point of the World Wrestling Federation special, which begins at 4 p.m. In a last-minute decision, the WWF had Bret Hart lose the Intercontinental title to the Mountie in Springfield, Mass. Hart, who was scheduled to defend his title against the Dudley Do-Right wannabe, will miss today's card because of a mere 104-degree fever. So no mention of Ric Flair in the headline here, but totally separate article. Oddly enough, this article at the end goes on to say, come and check out the results posted here tomorrow. Well, since they posted this article on the next day, if you turn to page 61, it talks about Flair winning the World Rumble. So I don't know why they misprinted that, but that's what I got for 1992 the Royal Rumble with Ric Flair winning the title. It's my all-time favorite Rumble. It is. It's mine, too. The bloody hair. So let's go down to Chris Van Vliet for the ruling on the news round. Was I the only one growing up that thought his name was Roddy Roddy Piper? <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought it was Roddy Roddy. I'm like, oh, that's a weird name. So it's when, whenever someone, like, says it correctly, Rowdy Roddy Piper, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. But it brings back those memories. I like that we let off with some very dark, sad news. And then two very nice stories to like kind of round it out there. And it, this is a tough pick because all three are big news stories. The birth of Hulkamania, which is basically launching WWF into the WWF that we know now. In fact, if it wasn't for that moment in 1984, the four of us probably wouldn't be sitting around right now because Vince McMahon wouldn't have created this juggernaut that he created. Flair winning, I mean, arguably one of the best Rumbles of all time. But 1999, Owen's death, that was one of those where were you when it happened moments. And I remember it specifically. My mom woke me up. I was in high school at the time. My mom woke me up and said, did you hear a wrestler died last night? Because I didn't watch the pay-per-view. I'm like, what? I was a huge wrestling fan. I'm like, what? What do you mean a wrestler died? Yeah, someone named um, um, uh, Owen? Owen? I'm like, oh my God, What? And it was one of those moments where I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. It was one of those, where were you when it happened moments? And it also, you know, there were so many different uh, ramifications after that. I mean, Bret Hart already hated Vince McMahon and this made him hate Vince McMahon that much more. Uh, This also made us think that he's probably never, ever going back to WWF. And uh, I just think that there was so much that ended up happening from that. Also gave us the best episode of Dark Side of the Ring that I think we've ever seen. So, Mike, 1999, you win another round. All right, Mike, you pick up another point. (laughs) You jump out to a 2-0 lead, but more importantly, you get to select our next category for our final one-point round. Uh, I was afraid you are going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) He is gracious in victory. I'm just rolling the dice here. I don't know what I... I, Because what I'm afraid of is that I'm going to waste my, like, my, my great uh, two-point round pick, but I guess I don't have to worry about Mike, that. Mike, how much Bo- of a wrestling fan are you? I tapped out in 1994. Okay, so we got two of the... Yeah, you should have been one of these other uh, years. <laughs> Mike wouldn't even been on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Mike was just the nice guy that filled in, was like, oh, wait, Bo's got notes? Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, they found me on the street. They gave me a sandwich. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. I hope it was a delicious sandwich. Uh, well, I thought it was, but it had mayonnaise on it, and I don't oh, like that. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. So I think I'm uh, I'm going to go with music here. Uh, 
1999. We've got uh, WWF The Music Volume 4, uh, a greatest hits of arguably the greatest wrestling theme composer of all time, excluding Rick Derringer. Uh, Jim Johnston, who recreated some of the most memorable entrance music of all time. Uh, track list includes uh, Break Down the Wall uh, with uh, Chris Jericho, a uh, big on the big show, uh, No Chance in Hell with the Corporation, Sexual Chocolate, Mark Henry, This is a Test by Test, Wreck Mankind, Oh Hell Yeah, performed by H-Block, and that's uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I think I've heard of him. Danger at the Door, D'Lo Brown, Blood Brother, uh, Christian, Ass Man by Mr. Ass, Ministry, uh, The Undertaker, uh, My Time, Triple H in China, on the Edge for Edge and Know Your Role uh, for The Rock uh, was a massive commercial success, reached number four on the U.S. Billboard 200 and certified platinum by the RIAA, which means it sold over one million copies, the second WWF album, Volume 3, being the first to do so. I had that. I have that too. It's yeah, a good album. Yeah, three and four were such good albums. And like, man, listing off some of those songs there. I was, I actually interviewed Billy Gunn recently and I was like, do you know the lyrics to your entrance song? Cause they're awful. I'm an ass man. I like to love them. I like to hug them. I like to kiss them. I like to kick them. What? <laughs> Who wrote this thing? I never looked at the lyrics, but you saying it makes it that much worse. <laughs> but all the other songs that you listed there, Mike, were great. That's cool. <laughs> What's that? Give me, give me a hell. Give me a yeah. Hell yeah. Remember that? An unofficial Stone Cold Steve Austin entrance theme. You actually said that Tess song was by Tess. Well, you know what? As I was reading it, I was like, I know that they don't sing these songs. So how am I going to say this? All right, man crush. What did you bring for the music round? All right. So let's go to July 23rd, 1984. So 1984. We didn't have like righteous WWF albums like Pile Driver or anything like that. I think it came out like three years later or something like that. So I had to like really look for something that was music related. Now, Hulk Hogan did come out to Eye of the Tiger for some of his fights in 84, but I think this selection carries a bit more weight than that. And we're all well aware that, you know, Vince McMahon bought WWF from his father in 1982. And he started signing all these big names from various territories. And basically, like Vince was attempting to distance WWF from the wrestling world to become more like a, an entertainment product. So sign up all the young guys, the up and coming guys, promote them to the top of the card and incorporate more star power. So one of the first avenues he explored was music. And in 1984, he officially gets into bed with MTV. Uh, who actually played music in 1984, if people weren't aware of that. Uh, but a year prior, Captain Lou Albano had a cameo in Cindy Lauper's video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So over the course of the year, they created this feud between Cindy Lauper and Captain Lou over like sexist remarks and things like that. So of course it's wrestling. What better way to settle a feud than have a darn wrestling match? And Cindy, of course, like, She's a huge pop star at the time, so obviously she's not going to wrestle. But she would get her choice of representation, as would Captain Lou. So on July 23rd of 1984, we get the first ever WWF match on MTV between Wendy Richter and the fabulous Moolah in what they would call the brawl to end it all. 
quite possibly the biggest WWF match on cable in terms of eyeballs watching, at least at the time. And it was the birth of the rock and roll wrestling connection, which is kind of like, you know, you have like the attitude era. This is like the rock and wrestling connection era. So when it was all said and done, Wendy Richter defeats the fabulous Moolah. Uh, once again, Moolah, essentially, she pins herself with the bridging German suplex. Like it just it must have been a thing in the early 80s to just fuck yourself by doing this move. Um <laughs> But uh, WWF, and they were billing, like, I watched this thing. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out. WWF, they were billing Moolah for having the uh, the World Women's Championship for something like 28 years or some ridiculous number like that. I think during the broadcast, they actually said seven years. So, you know, people are just making shit up. But it was a long time either way. So in either event, this was a huge upset. And this drew a nine share on MTV. Wow. So this was the most watched thing on MTV up until that point. What? And it's hard not to say, like, without rock and wrestling connection, it's possible that we get no WrestleMania. I mean, this is enormous. Like, if you didn't have Cindy Lauper and you didn't have those stars coming out, that event would have just been like Starcade 84. You know, like, it just wouldn't have been another wrestling event. But this is a pretty big deal. July 23rd, 1984. All right, guys. So for my music selection, you know I think he's cute. He's so sexy. He's got the look that drives the girls wild. He's got the moves that really move me. <laughs> he does send chills up and down my spine. Because on February 17th, 1992, Mr. Shawn Michaels had recently adopted a new persona and a new theme song, that sexy boy. It was originally sung by his manager, Mrs. Sherry Martell or Sensational Sherry at the time. Originally, it was supposed to be sung by, get this, Jimmy Hart. But a last-minute decision and a conversation between Jimmy Hart and Bruce Pritchard, they saw Sherry just kind of in the background mouthing the words as they were coming up with the tune. And Pritchard's like, you know, Jimmy, I think we should have Sherry sing it. And I know this quote is legit because the quote says, Baby, I was just thinking the exact same thing. And that's exactly what Jimmy Hart would say. So you know this is a true story. So yeah, that's what I'm coming with for the music round. It's the debut of Sexy Boy, one of the most iconic uh, entrance ring songs ever. Of course, Shawn Michaels would go on to redo it in his own voice, which I always thought was kind of weird that he was singing it about himself. I prefer the Sherry version. So that's what I got for music. The debut of Sexy Boy, February 17th, 1992. When did Shawn Michaels start singing it? I can't, I mean... That's such an iconic theme song. And you're right. The fact that Shawn Michaels is singing about himself is it's a little bit odd. It was a year later he started debuting his own version in February 93. So we kind of got the, the Sherry version for about a year there. So I, fun fact here, you guys probably know this. The reason that Jimmy Hart was going to sing is because Jimmy Hart wrote the song, which is mind-boggling to me. That And Jimmy Hart apparently has written a bunch of wrestling themes. <laughs> Who wrote Ass Man? Yeah, it's so wild. All right, man. Jeez. Okay. You guys are making this tough on me. And thank you. <laughs> I appreciate this. I'm going to go on this one with the sexy boy because that all is right. easily one of the most iconic theme songs of all time. But it's tough because 
You raised such a good argument for 1984 with MTV and Cyndi Lauper, which led into the success of WrestleMania, which led into everything else after that. But there's something special about HBK's theme song. So I'm going to go with 1992 Shawn Michaels theme song, which then opened the doors for all these other wrestlers to sing their theme songs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know who, who sang their own. I mean, John Cena sang his theme song. Well, The Rock sang a whole song about pie that he never even bothered using for an entrance theme. So I can't even remember. figure that one out. Was that the Wyclef Jean one? Oh, no, that was, a, that was It Doesn't Matter. That yes. Was a, yep. What a terrible song that was. <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> I got 50 ladies in the West Indies. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I pick up a point in that round, and I take control of the board to get to select the next category. Uh, you know what, gentlemen? Let's go over to the movies round. All right, so for my movie selection, we're going to go over to the Courier Journal in Louisville, Kentucky, July 11th, 1992. For a review by Jack Garner from the Gannett News Service, two muscular action actors, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, join forces in Roland Emmerich's Universal Soldier. A high-tech action thriller, it's obviously designed to elevate both men a few rungs on the popularity ladder previously climbed by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. So I am picking Universal Soldier, debuted July 10th, 1992, and of course, that co-starred the late, great Tom Tiny Zeus Lister. He played uh, GR-55 in that, he was one of the other Universal Soldiers. But man, I don't know if you guys have sat down and watched Universal Soldier in a while, but it just doesn't hold up whatsoever. But it's still <laughs> a fun flick, man. It's so outdated. This is a type of movie that I think needs a reboot. They need to no. just redo this whole thing from scratch. Have it star John Cena. WWE can produce it. You know, why not? Two rival soldiers were killed in Vietnam and brought back to life in a top-secret military experiment that creates superhuman warriors. You can't go wrong with that. It didn't do the greatest at the box office. Uh, on a budget of $23 million, it only brought in 36 But this is something that we talk about often on this show, and that's the aftermarket value. Once this hit cable television in the rental stores is where it really gained its audience. So that's what I'm bringing for the movies round. July 10th, 1992, Universal Soldier, co-starring Tiny Zeus Lister. What did you find so bad about it on the rewatch? Lundgren was fantastic. I really liked Lundgren in this movie, but Van Damme, I didn't care for him at all in this. It's one of the worst performances I've ever seen of his. <laughs> I guess. The, the description alone that you read there doesn't <laughs> sound like it holds up. It doesn't. It really doesn't. They pack them in ice, and they can self-heal themselves. Very little explanation is given to how this is done. I, I just want some more facts. So you want a prequel, not a not a reboot. Yeah, I just I want them to like restart the whole franchise over again. I don't I don't know if anybody needs that. <laughs> I kind of see I I see some some scenes like he seems like. Uh, He's like a foreigner that doesn't speak English almost right. in certain scenes, which is kind of odd. I, or, so I, I kind of get it. And the whole thing with Dolph Lundgren having a penchant for throwing grenades at women, that doesn't hold up as much. It's 1992. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the movies round? 
Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm going to look down here and I have my notes and I'm going to read whatever's written. Uh, so arrived at what could be described as the height of professional wrestling popula- popularity beyond the mat was released on October 22nd, 1999 in Los Angeles theaters by imagine entertainment and Lionsgate. Ron Howard, Opie from Andy Griffith served as producer on the wrestling movie. Uh, most of the focus is on the three legends of the squared circle, Mick Foley, Terry Funk, and Jake, the snake Roberts. It somewhat shows every stage of one's career. Foley, who was at the height of his success, Funk, who was on the verge of one of his retirements, and Roberts, who was essentially at his career and life lows. The film was made largely by Barry Blostein, who made the film on a budget of 500000 over the course of filming for about three to five years. At the box office, it hauled in over $2 million. They honestly could have made a film about the film. There's a lot of interesting stuff we don't have time to cover in this show that uh, went on during the creation of the documentary, including Vince McMahon initially offering full access behind the scenes of WWF, only to later attempt to revoke that privilege. Rotten Tomatoes, where the film is certified at, at 82% fresh, said, even if you aren't a fan... The movie provides a riveting, perceptive look into the world of professional wrestling by taking a closer look beneath the personas. It really is an excellent documentary, particularly for wrestling fans and those who were fans during the particular era of the sport. Uh, So, yeah, there's my pick, uh, Beyond the Mat, released October 22nd, 1999. You ever see that, Mike? Uh, No. You'd actually probably like it. Well, it's on Netflix, I think, still. You know, sometimes Netflix changes the thumbnail so like you could maybe be more interested in a film that maybe you weren't interested in. For Beyond the Mat, they just have a, you know, it's always The Rock. Like, well, The Rock was like in the movie for like four minutes, but (laughs) I get it. He's the biggest star in the world. So yeah, Beyond the Mat's a a movie with The Rock, yeah. (laughs) People are watching it like, where is he? (laughs) The thumbnail for Beyond the Mat should just be Dennis on the trampoline in his underwear with the weights. That's all you need. Or Jake the Snake feeding the ducks. Yes. <laughs> Look at them ducks. <laughs> Never forget that part. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the movies round? Oh, man, that's hard to top. Let's go to uh, June 29th, 1984. And it, this is a follow-up to one of the coolest movies of my childhood. We get not one wrestler in this, but we get two. And I'll give you a hint. The first one is Pat Roach. It's a little bit of a deep cut. You might remember him from uh, the Indiana Jones movies. He's also in that. Uh, but there's another guy. Uh, but the original movie in this series, this is like Arnold Schwarzenegger's like first real breakout role. Not this one, but the original. This is the sequel. And that one, it's glorious. Super violent. It has weird sex scenes. Giant snakes. Pretty much like everything like a prepubescent boy could ask for. Uh, and then in 1984, it was time for a sequel, but the producers, they got greedy and they wanted to make more than the 70 odd million dollars that they made in 1982. So how do you make more money? Well, you drop the R rating and you go with the motherfucking PG rating. And in spite of the PG rating, I don't think I ever bothered to watch this movie until I watched it last night. <laughs> so so they ended up getting my $3.99 rental because I don't own this one. Uh, and a little side note on this, uh, PG-13 was not actually out yet, or it wasn't a thing yet. That didn't happen for two days. So that's probably why they released this on June 29th, because they got a little bit more leeway with those PG films than the PG-13 films. So that's probably why it released two days early. But when it was all said and done, 
Uh, this movie only brought in $32 million at the box office, which is roughly $80 million in 2020. So going the family-friendly route did not pay off. And seriously, like, all logic is thrown out the window when these decisions are made. Two years prior, you put out an ultra-violent fantasy movie with, like, weird sexual elements to it. Now you're expecting parents to completely forget that and take their kids to see the sequel. Like, I, I just don't understand. Like, did D. Laurinaitis, who's a producer, like, did the D. Laurinaitis clan, like, not have children? If you took me to see this movie, or you took any child and they liked it, wouldn't you kind of expect them to want to see the original afterwards? Or they just go, like, forget it? I, I guess in my case, like, my parents probably would have went for that, but I think that was more the exception than the rule. Stupid choice. I mean, what could have been? If they just had like a continuation from the first movie, not all bad though. And this is my reason behind choosing this movie. Since Arnold did this movie, they had to push back to production schedule for his next movie, which was Terminator. So while they were wasting time filming this gem, James Cameron spent that time rewriting the screenplay for Terminator. And since he had even more time, because this is an epic movie that they're doing, James Cameron also had time to finish Aliens. So I'm not going to say he wouldn't have had time to write Aliens or that the original Terminator screenplay was worse than what he rewrote. But damn, they both worked out in his favor with this extra time. But anyways, if you're looking for a movie where Wilt Chamberlain, the the guy who allegedly slept with 20,000 women is specifically told to make sure that a girl stays a virgin. You got Arnold knocking out horses with one punch. You got the late great Andre, the giant playing the final monster in this one. You got Grace Jones acting like she's on a constant drip of meth. Conan in one of the best drunk scenes, like in cinematic history, or perhaps there's this cringeworthy scene that ends the entire movie where a 14 year old kisses a 37 year old. Very fucking weird when I was watching this last night. But uh, if you like all that stuff, then Conan the Destroyer is the movie for you. And that's June 29th, 1984. Was was the first Conan the one where they had to dub Arnold's voice because they in couldn't some understand spot, what he was yeah. saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His dialogue in this one is so limited and it's very basic. Like he says like, yes, no. <laughs> not not much. Learned, like They learned their lesson. They couldn't afford the ADR. Right. <laughs> But I mean, it's, there are funny, it's not supposed to be funny, but there are scenes last night that I was, when he knocked out the horse with one punch, (laughs) I nearly lost my shit. I had to watch it like three times in a row. You know, you couldn't do that in 2020. You couldn't punch a horse in 2020. (laughs) He knocked that horse right down. And then the horse, which is funny because the horse ends up getting up and, and just like riding off. And the guy that was on the horse is still on the ground. He's dead. I was like, so he punched the horse so hard that the guy died and the horse ran away. But yeah, it's, uh, if you need a couple laughs, go check out Conan the Destroyer. All right. Let's toss it down to our celebrity guest judge, Chris Van Vliet for the ruling on the movies round. Well, you guys have given me two terrible films and arguably the best wrestling documentary of all time. So I've, I've got a got a tough decision to make here um no it has to go to 1999 beyond the mat is the quintessential wrestling (laughs) documentary which still holds up now uh and i i'll never forget that scene where the rock is bludgeoning mankind's head in with the steel chair 
they cut to the audience, they see his wife and his small children, and she ends up taking them away because, you know, they didn't want to, she didn't want to have them watch her father, their father, get his brains beaten in. That is, uh, that is such an incredible film, and it gave us a real peek behind the curtain of what wrestling was like, because we didn't see a lot of that up until that point. And that has now, I think, paved the way for these incredible documentaries that they're putting on the WWE Network now. Now, you see a lot of stuff behind the scenes that we don't see. What are the, what are the safety measures and stuff? Because they still do crazy stuff. I mean, if you watch guys like Darby Allen and like, I, I'm just in awe of the stuff that they do. Like, what are the safety measures that they kind of or do you even know like what they've put in to kind of eliminate some of this stuff that went on in that documentary? I think the biggest thing that they're worried about is concussions. So chair shots to the head, you know, just aren't a thing anymore. And in that film, I don't know how many mankind took 20 of them or something like that. So that's a big thing. So, I mean, when Cody Rhodes took a chair shot to the head last year at double or nothing, this was huge, huge news. And they were supposed to be using a gimmick chair was supposed to just kind of like, you know, kind of crumble on his head. Like you might see a cookie sheet or something do that and ended up uh, not going so well. And Cody's head got busted open (laughs) 12 stitches later or something like that. But that's probably the biggest measure is they've realized over the last 20 years, how bad concussions are and how serious concussions are. So other than that, I, I honestly think when you see someone like a Jeff Hardy or a Darby Allen doing crazy stuff, it's just kind of like, do you feel safe doing this? Okay. And then they go to the opponent. Do you feel safe doing this? Okay. Well, sounds good. <laughs> Let's do it. It's wild. Watch some of the stuff that he, he, yeah, you brought up Jeff Hardy. He does just like the, what was that? Like last month he did something insane. Oh, that looks so painful. Oh God. He came down on the back of his head. I was like, oh my God, like how long is this guy going to do this for? But yeah, I always think about that. Like you watch that documentary and you see what these guys went through and these guys are still doing that. So anytime somebody says like, oh, wrestling's fake, it's like, go watch anything. You don't even have to watch a documentary. Just watch what they're doing today. And you can see that, you know, they're going nuts. Like these guys are still going all in. Fake's never the right word, you know, that because movies are fake. TV shows are fake. Broadway shows are fake. You just got to be able to put it in that same category. It's scripted. It's predetermined. Right. Fucking unreal, though. It's a great documentary. All right, Mike Ranger, you picked up a couple of points on that round, and you know what that means. You actually win this game with a score of four to one, but we're going to play on and go to the final hot products round, so you can either start us off or defer once again. Well, you know, I might as well start you off because, uh, you know, I did a lot. I put a lot of work into this, and uh, as you can see, I'm, uh, you know, I won, so... <laughs> You know, congratulations, Mike. <laughs> really, I should just leave now, but I'm going to, you know, entertain the audience. Uh, so uh, released uh, my hot product here. We'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, released across all platforms in the summer of 1999. WWF Attitude on the Game Boy, the, on the Game Boy Color, Nintendo 64, PlayStation and Dreamcast served as a claimed sports sequel to 1999's WWF Warzone. It would also serve as the final WWF title to be made by a claim before THQ's lengthy run as the creator of WWF's video game titles. The gameplay, which I remember as clunky at best, was largely retained from Warzone, but improvements were made to this installment, including replacing the challenging mode with a career mode, more akin to what we know today, where players worked their way up through the system, challenging for titles along the way to the top of the promotion. 
This was the first game to incorporate the first blood and I quit match types, which is pretty innovative when, when you look back on it. The game also included a create a stable mode, a create a PPV and customize, customizable arenas. You've got Shane McMahon and Jerry Lawler on commentary. You also had full entrances in this game. Warzone only offered partial entrances. This game actually offered more lifelike reactions of the real-life counterparts. And though they weren't in the game, the Hardy Boys provided the mo the mocap for the game. Not exactly sure what that means, but I said it. Uh, <laughs> the PlayStation version received generally positive and favorable reviews, though other console versions for some reason weren't quite as highly regarded, but still got decent praise. Also of note, WWF WrestleMania 2000 on the N64 GameCube Color, WWC uh, NWO Thunder on the PlayStation and WCW Mayhem on the PlayStation N64 and Game Boy Color. So, yeah, hot product was the uh, WWF Attitude. You ever play that, Mike? Um, no, but I do know that most of the wrestling games on the Nintendo 64 are above average. So I'm sure this one fits right in. <laughs> we should let Mike know what mocap means. Yeah, could somebody please tell me? Because Motion capture. Mike, oh, capture. is that what it is? Right. Oh, it's not man. when they just capture Mo from Mo and Mabel, <laughs> which is a bigger feat. Or it's not a guy named Mo wearing a cap. Right. Oh. <laughs> oh okay. See, I I thought it was a a, a text font. <laughs> All right, man crush. Let's hear what you have for the hot products uh, round. All right, so let's go uh, April 1st, 1984. This is a straight personal pick for me. In 1984, there, there weren't too many things to choose from, like merchandise-wise, to be considered like a hot product. However, WWF superstars, you know, the big old rubber wrestling figures, they did release Series 1, and that's huge. But since I picked Series 3 for uh, when we did wrestling of 1989, yeah. I decided to not go the redundant route. So I'm not picking that here, but it did come out just in case people want to go, why the fuck didn't you pick that? So I'm throwing <laughs> out there. That's why I didn't pick it. All right. Which we get all the time. Yeah. I mean, send me messages, whatever. So, so I started to think about like all the wrestling stuff I had as a kid. And one of the things my mom would always buy me when we went grocery shopping were wrestling magazines. Uh, probably was her way of shopping in peace. And I totally understand that now having a child of my own, uh, this particular issue, I did have a copy of, and it actually, it still might be with my comic boxes that are buried in their storage locker. Uh, but I don't have it on me. I wish I did. Cause I couldn't find the scans of the individual pages of this. I just knew the cover, but in 1983 WWF, they put out their first magazine. It was called WWF victory magazine and they would release two magazines under that name to mediocre success so in 1984 you had the brand new world heavyweight champion becoming like the biggest thing since sliced bread so hulk hogan he would don the cover of the newly minted wwf magazine and uh, they would they even made this they made it a totally new volume so if you look at the magazine it says volume two issue one completely getting away from victory magazine the magazine itself it would be around for 30 years lots of iterations rebrandings kayfabe no kayfabe maxim style towards like the late or early 2000 mid 2000s 
and it would stick around until they folded it in October of 2014. And in that last issue, they had the shield on the front cover. So like three guys that are doing like big things in wrestling now. And in the first step or the first issue, they had Hulk Hogan who was doing big, big things in wrestling in 1984. But that spring of 1984, you can get your very own copy WWF magazine for the mere price of $2.25, close to 6 bucks in 2020. So not that bad, uh, but some big things. The one thing I did remember from this, and I was looking for it, there's uh, and I found the topics that were in this. There's a newcomer section that has uh, Dr. David Schultz on it, <laughs> which I wanted to find. We have this guy that is a friend of ours that judges the show, David Schultz. And we started calling him Dr. David Schultz. So I wanted to find the picture, <laughs> but I couldn't find it. I, I got to definitely dig for that one. But that's what I got for my hot products. All right, gentlemen. So for my hot product, I wanted to pick a product that was personal to me as well. I went with a video game that I have soaked hundreds upon hundreds of hours into playing. And that's 1992's WWF Super WrestleMania for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, unlike the Genesis version of this game, the SNES version did not have the finishing moves in it, but it did have a far superior roster of wrestlers. You had Animal, Earthquake, Hawk, Hulk Hogan, Jake Roberts, Randy Savage, Sid Justice, Ted DiBiase, Typhoon, and The Undertaker. Now, in the Genesis version, you had British Bulldog, Hulk Hogan, IRS, Papa Shango, Randy Savage, Shawn Michaels, Ted DiBiase, and he actually got the Ultimate Warrior. But the SNES version, the graphics were so much better, and that's the one I played. I remember growing up, every summer, we went camping. We stayed out at a campground from the day school got out to the night before school got in, and I used to bring my little 13-inch color TV outside, set it up on the picnic table, hook up my SNES outside, and we'd sit and play Super WrestleMania for just absolute hours. Love this game. It was the first in a, in a line, a, a trilogy of games. WWF Royal Rumble and WWF Raw followed that. And this game, Super WrestleMania, started that tug-of-war grappling style system where you just see if you could out-button mash your opponent. Fantastic. Uh, but it's just a game I absolutely love. came out March 1992, and that's WWF Super WrestleMania for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So that's my pick for the Hunt Products round. That totally reminds me that we had different rosters on Genesis and yes. Super Nintendo. I completely forgot that. Yeah. I, see, I always played the Super Nintendo versions. I thought the graphics were better and the gameplay was a little more fluid. And I didn't have a Genesis, so. But I got a Genesis because <laughs> Mortal Kombat had blood in it on Genesis yeah. and it did not have blood. It had sweat on Super Nintendo. That's wow. right, those bastards. Now, see, on the Genesis version of Super WrestleMania, since you had the Ultimate Warrior and Papa Shango, you should have been able to make Ultimate Warrior, like, spit up the green blood. and Oh, yeah. See, that would have been cool, but no. I have button mashed many times on that game. Yeah. I button mashed on all my games. I'm the worst <laughs> game player ever. <laughs> all right, let's go down to Chris Van Vliet for the final ruling on this game. Three great products here, too. And this one kind of hits close to home because I don't have a lot of wrestling memorabilia around my place here. But if I tilt the camera here, greatest match of all time, by the way, Rock Hogan, WrestleMania 18. But if we keep going here, that is a copy 
of WWF or WWE magazine autographed by The Rock. So I'm going to give it to WWF, the magazine, which, you know, it, it really changed things in the world of wrestling because like you were saying, Man Crush, they kind of towed this line between what was kayfabe and what was not kayfabe. And especially as the magazine went on. And this was in an era before the internet. We got yep. all of our information from WWF, the magazine. And uh, I think that it was such a quintessential part of growing up in the 80s, reading those magazines as you were checking out at the grocery store. My parents wouldn't buy them for me, but we would, I would read them, flip through them real quick. And then when we were done grocery shopping, have to put them away. Yep. So WWF, the magazine, I can't, I can't believe it was 1984. I feel like it was, it's, I can't believe it's that old, but I'm absolutely giving it to 1984 on this one. Well, in the early 90s, that's when they started to kind of shift a little bit. I think that's when I, I just hit high school. So I stopped getting my subscription probably around like 92, 93. But I remember like after uh, like uh, Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth were getting the divorce. Right. They kind of touched on that in the magazine. So they broke the kayfabe there. And then uh, Brutus Beefcake, when he got into the, uh, the parasailing accident. Yep. They had a whole, like an issue about that. Yeah. And so they they did toe the line. They went back and forth. The ones in the eighties that were straight kayfabe, like it was amazing. I remember like the ones like around like WrestleMania three and stuff. I have all those. I got to find them all. Cause the articles were so freaking kayfabe. <laughs> like, oh, the best were the, the, the wrestler profiles. Yeah. Where it would tell you like, what's their favorite food and favorite yeah. movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then dirt sheets came along and, you know, well, yep. the internet in general kind of made magazines not really, you know, relevant anymore, but dirt sheets came along and we kind of went, well, why do I need to buy this magazine? I already found out that news three weeks ago. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was plus like in the late eighties too, I think it was bi-monthly for a while. Like, uh, <laughs> so you were getting eight weeks of news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were getting like some old stuff, but I mean, back then, like you said, there's no internet. So where are you getting that information from? So it was fun to get. And my mom wouldn't always buy me like the, uh, the PWIs or anything like that. Cause we'd always have like some bloody dude in the front and always, you know, ra being raised in New York, we only had WWF really. So like a lot of times I'd see those and I have no idea who was on the cover, who this bloody mess was, you know? So, uh, that was, it was huge. And I, I mean, much of the decorations that hung on my walls, uh, in my bedroom walls as a teenage kid came from WWF, the magazine. That was awesome. So I did not get shut out. So that's good. But I didn't. <laughs> now, Chris, you brought up like all the dirt sheets and how that kind of changed everything. You know, no, I always thought that wrestling has always had, you know, this rabid following. And now we have more promotions than ever. We have more TV shows and more content that's readily available. So it's almost evolved, I think, to like a counterculture that if you don't want to tune into what's really happening in the world, you can kind of submerge yourself into the world of wrestling. You're going to get your drama, your action, and then just an endless feed of news and rumors. Yeah, you really, yeah, that's such a great point. And the, the, the news cycle in wrestling is like, it might even be quicker than the news cycle in the rest of the world. Like yes. something that came out in the morning, nobody seems to care about that night. It's... It's a weird, strange thing because wrestling, and I will use air quotes, journalism 
<laughs> is nothing more than hearsay from like some guy's friend's cousin. And they'll be like, oh, well, our source says. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that we have all of this and it's so readily available with the Internet and everything, where do you think the industry evolves from here? Where do we go now that they've cr- we've created this culture? Well, I don't know if it changes that much. Like we have social media right now. We have the internet. How much more could change? And then we're going to look back at this clip 10 years from now and go, ha ha, look at our (laughs) hologram phones that we're talking on now. But I don't know if it can really change that much. I mean, if we're talking short term here, things can only get better when fans start to come back into shows. Like that's what no sport is losing out more right now in terms of the experience than pro wrestling is. And uh, I interviewed Hurricane Helms recently and he had the perfect analogy. He said, this is like going to a comedy show with no one in the crowd. Right. That's exactly what it's like. You know, you're, you're watching these wrestling matches and you're not getting any reaction from it. So I think that in the short term, it gets so much better when life gets back to, you know, something that resembles normalness and we have fans in there. But man, with social media and dirt sheets and message boards and, 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 I don't know what else could, you know, you could possibly add on to that in wrestling. I will say the the one thing that I think it might kind of, you know, evolve into is those worked shoots, which we, you know, we, we've, we've seen them a handful of times before, like yeah. CM Punk's pipe bomb. Was that really planned? But he's talking about Colt Cabana and he's saying ring of honor. So was he allowed to say that? I think we're going to start to see those lines blur a little bit more. We think we know what these characters are like. We see them posing with their wife and their kids and their dogs on social media. We think we know them. And then they'll kind of just throw us a curveball. So I think that that's actually what it's going to turn into. More of these worked shoots where we kind of scratch our heads and go, huh, I thought those guys really hated each other and doesn't seem like they do anymore. Yeah, and you're starting to see a little bit of that with what Kenny Omega's doing right now with Impact. Yes, yep. that's yeah. pretty awesome. Exactly. Which is nice. It would be nice to see more of that, you know, like the territory stuff, start bringing it back. Like, you know, if one guy wants to dump out, go to Impact or, you know, go to ROH or whatever. It's just cool. Like, you get different angles of stuff. They're not the same guys. It's not. It makes it new each week so you don't really know what's coming up which i think that was one of my problems with wwe when i stopped watching last year it was kind of it was kind of recycled like everything was just recycling we were getting the same thing again and again and again and then AEW came along and it kind of changed that a little bit so hopefully it does keep going in that direction what do you think uh as far as like these cinematic matches that are happening like the wwe like they put those on and that was actually really cool i thought uh, especially for the guys that are a little bit, you know, long in the tooth or whatever, they can do a little bit more. Do you think we're going to get a lot more of that now that they know that that works? I think that the only reason it worked is because of the weird, strange situation that we're in right now in True. 2020. Because I can't imagine being at WrestleMania in a crowd of 80,000 people and them going, oh, it's time for the Boneyard match. And then everyone just turns their head up and watches a Jumbotron for 20 minutes. True. So I think that it was... It was just a you know lightning in a bottle right now. We got you know we got some incredible matches out of it, but I think that it was it only works because of this strange, weird time that we're in right now. And when crowds come back, nothing beats that live reaction from a hot crowd. You know, from the second their music hits at the start of the match to the second the winner's music hits at the end of the match. So I think that they've look AEW, WWE. Impact Wrestling, Ring of Honor, and New Japan now has fans, but everybody's done a really good job of adapting to this 
and not missing a beat. WWE, all of them, they didn't miss a beat. They didn't miss a single episode. And if it took them doing something like having these cinematic matches, man, my hat's off to them because WrestleMania was memorable for all of the right reasons. And we all went into WrestleMania this year going, this thing's going to be so weird. There's not yeah. going to be anyone there. But the cinematic matches, I think, actually saved the day. The one thing that sucks, and it's going to suck for years to come, we got all these awesome introductions of new people coming over. Like, you know, to AW, you got like Matt Hardy coming in. Just imagine like if there was a, a crowd there to witness all this stuff that happened, all these new guys coming. It would have been pandemonium, and we missed out on that. Like, yeah. do you do you get the feeling they're going to try to like up that ante when they get fans back somehow making more surprises because we did, we missed out on an entire year. We got these really cool introductions that we can't even really experience. I feel like whenever they announce that first show with a full crowd, it's going to be WrestleMania and the Super Bowl like all wrapped up into <laughs> one. Like they're going to pull out all of the stops. And I'm not saying CM Punk is going to come back, but I'm saying I would not be surprised <laughs> if CM Punk comes back for that first episode back with like a crowd. Because it we've we've been doing the best with what we can and the fact that AEW has, you know, few hundred fans there is is nice to hear that like live live reaction but the greatest moments in wrestling are not what happens in the ring it's the reaction to what happens yeah. in the ring and i re just referenced my favorite match of all time rock hogan wrestlemania 18 the actual wrestling in that match was fine it was good but i was there and i have goosebumps when i talk about it now because the crowd reaction yeah. was so crazy the crowd sells that match completely yes and that's what wrestling is all about it sucks i the last thing i went to well i went to like a local one that was at the mahonic drive-in with like some like territory uh i don't even know who they were but it was fun because it was the first one i had seen in months but i went to uh daily's place in january it was their first show of the year and that was amazing. And then it just got ripped out from under us. You know, it was like, we, my wife went with me. We started out, we were on vacation. I was like, we're right here. We got to go. And we sat like four rows from the ring. It was amazing. And then two months later, everything was taken away. And then yeah. we had to watch but, everything. But with that there. said, I think that Tony Khan is so fortunate that they had access to that building Yeah, because it's an open air facility. They didn't have to, you know, worry about any of the regulations when that first started. So the fact that they had that in their back pocket, I think might've actually saved AEW. That place is cool too. It's, That's very uh, cool. Like an outdoor it's amphitheater. Cool. And it's yep. crazy to think AEW has done more shows with no fans than they have with fans. Wow. That's true, yeah. I haven't even thought about that. You're right. That is crazy. Well, we'll see. Hopefully, uh, you know, this this whole like vaccine thing. And I don't even know. I, I'm not a scientist. So I don't know how this shit's going to go. None but of hopefully, us do. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully by like, you know, spring or something, we're, uh, we're getting out. And I, I have concert tickets that like, we've talked about it on the show before. I have Billy Joel tickets that I bought in 2018 that we're not even going to get to go to the show until the end of 2021. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's when insane. was this supposed to be? It was supposed to be initially uh, March of this year, and then it got pushed back from March to September, and then 
and all along we we knew that it was gonna get canceled in september but they waited to like the last second they waited like the week before and they were like oh yeah we're putting it off and uh they canceled it and now it's like november i forgot the date but like i want to say like november 17th 2021 well finger fingers crossed (laughs) yeah that you can go to a concert in november i i have a feeling we're gonna have to show like that we got vaccinated to go to concerts yeah, oh my God. I think that's going to be a thing moving forward. It wouldn't surprise it wild. me. It really wouldn't bring your vaccination papers with you. Yeah, or like um, in the movie Contagion, everyone has like a wristband with a yes. uh, barcode on it. Oh, you want to come in here? Beep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it takes long enough to get into play. I used to have jet season tickets and like getting into the, uh, I know the jets are horrible, but like there's still people that go to the games and even getting into that stadium, it would take like a half hour to get through the gate can you imagine like having to check each individual person's vaccination records yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh it's like you're going to the vet or some shit yeah where's your vaccination <laughs> card i seriously think that's gonna be a thing god that's gonna be it's a different world man is hopefully you know it changes for the best but i think people will be so like just happy to go to anything yes. i don't even think it'll give a shit like even if it's the worst show in the world that first show, people are going to be like, this is the best, you know? Well, I, I think it's going to be divided. There's going to be those people that are like, I can't wait to go to something. And right. then there's going to be another bunch of people that are going to go, I'm not going to anything for the next five years. And, this, yeah. you know, th- those were the same group of people that didn't want to fly on an airplane for years and years after 9-11. And I get it. You know, everyone's able to make that choice for themselves. But I think for every person that's jacked up and can't wait to go to football games, hockey games, concerts, comedy clubs, whatever, it's going to be a large contingent of people that are going, nope, not leaving the house. Well, that's good for me. I'll get tickets. Me too. <laughs> get some solid seats. You got to look at the positive side, I guess. What do you have coming up, Chris? You have any uh, big interviews coming up or anything? Well, I just did this interview with Booker T, which will be dropping right before the end of the year, like right before. I'm, and I'm looking back at my top five interviews of the year, which has been a, you know, been a crazy year. And I'm, you know, crazy to think that I started the year with an in-person interview with Kurt Angle, followed by an in-person interview with David Benoit, which was his first interview that he'd ever really done. And then a whole bunch of Zoom interviews since then. So I'm going to be recapping my top five interviews of the year. And then into 2021, knowing that this it's going to be so much better than, than what this year was. Hopefully. I'm knocking on wood will for be. everybody. It will, it will be. be. <laughs> we'll, st- we'll see. I am, uh, I'm trying to stay positive about the whole thing, but I'll still knock on wood for everybody. That's going to be on your YouTube channel, right? Everything yep, that you that's do. That's all going to be on my YouTube channel. And thank you guys for having me on. This was very fun. It also made me realize how awesome 1999 was. <laughs> <laughs> And 1984 wasn't, <laughs> but yeah, we're big fans of your channel and all your work. So thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it, man. No, it's my pleasure. You guys do great stuff. And I wish I had a more fun background. You guys have such fun backgrounds behind you. All three of you. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad Bo wasn't here. Cause then Bo looks like he's in the same room as I am. So we're both in the murder basement. <laughs> Cause he's got the same exact setup. But uh, murder basement, but no one will be able to hear it because it's soundproof. (laughs) 
it's right. true. Mm. It's true. And that's what makes it the murder basement. But that's it. Bo will be happy to know that all his work went into a win. So thank you, Mike Ranger, for showing up and delivering Bo's words. Oh, well, you're you're very welcome there, man crush. And, uh, you know, then also to the audience at home, you're also very welcome for being able to hear me this week. Um, so, uh, yeah, you got that going for you, which is nice. I feel like I need to go watch Beyond the Mat now. Yeah. Uh, follow it up with Conan the Destroyer. You won't regret <laughs> it. <laughs> it's a good doubleheader right there. But thanks again for coming on, man. And uh, before you leave, can you uh, give old Bo Beecraft a get well soon? Oh, yeah, Bo, please. Get well soon. 1999 needs you. <laughs> <laughs> he will love that. It'll make him feel better. Oh, this was great. Thank you, guys. And you do, you do such great work. So it, it, my pleasure coming on here. This was great. Thank you very much. Come back anytime. Oh, I'd love to. All right, Duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to end this episode right here. want to thank Chris Van Vliet for coming in this week and being an excellent judge. But if you've missed an episode, don't worry. You can always head back to DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Spotify, really everywhere podcasts are available. And while you're on those interwebs, head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades, where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.